1: Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's definitive almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette and the very beautiful, worth £7.50 with every order
2: and chapter three the brand i created founded in 2015 and it's uh, something that i've uh, always wanted to do is bring to cycling a, a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline but multi-disciplines and we're on the journey and i hope you'll join us go to chapter3.com and see what we've got uh, there are lots of stories there's products there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's just about 10.30 on race day, so in around about eight hours' time, uh, whoever is going to win this bike race will come hurtling down the Via Roma in whatever shape or form, whether it's a solo rider like Vincenzo Nibali a couple of years ago, or, or a little group, which it normally is. Um, you can guarantee that whoever wins it will have won uh, an exceptional edition of this bike race. Kind of whatever happens, it's very hot already. Half past ten in the morning, bright. It's a fierce, fierce sunlight. Um, you can really feel the power, and and it contrasts so much with my previous two visits uh, to San Remo at its normal point in the calendar. Where yeah, it's lovely weather, but it you know in the mornings it's quite chilly, and in the evenings by the time. The early afternoon, late afternoon, early evening. By the time the champagne corks are being popped, it's actually can be quite cold. Uh, It's just, yeah, it's just sweltering today, and it's going to be. It's a fascinating bike race. I've got to after this. I've got to um, sit down and start to flesh out again the details of uh, around about 25 or 30 riders who I've kind of um, highlighted and whose names I've plucked off the start list. Not necessarily riders who I think out-and-out favourites to go and win, but riders who could be disruptive, could do things, you know. Maybe haven't done too much in the past in this race, but there's no reason to suggest they can't in this edition. So I've, I've got to just double-check in my commentary notes that uh, what they've been up to in 2020, pre- and post-lockdown, and whether I've missed some detail from somewhere that is uh, worthy of note. So I'm sitting in the TV compound, uh, right adjacent to the finish line. That There's a balcony, a very kind of ornate Baroque effects stucco balcony that I always look at here because it must be the best balcony in all of Italy as it overlooks the finish line i mean you can there 's always a bit of a party going on in there i 'll be interested to see just who assembles on that balcony later they 've got the best view in the world today in the meantime the barriers have appeared overnight the um various different kind of brands have placed their wares on display. I don't quite know why, really, just because they should. But um, from what I've been reading, that I think the crowds will be pretty sparse. I was even reading a, one report in a German newspaper today that suggests that the mayor of San Remo has ordered a €400 euro fine that the police will enforce to anyone who actually stands by the side of the road in San Remo and supports the race today. So we'll keep our eye on that. In the meantime, the generators have been sparked up at the big TV trucks here. Everything's being unpacked. The cameras are being fixed to their various different locations. And, um, yeah... It's race day. A the inseguimento in testa al gruppo, il numero quattro, Declerc del Alaphilippe. And Wout Van Aert is there, and so too, I think, is Mia Kwiatkowski. But Ala Philippe looks round and guess who he sees? Right on his wheel. Wout Van Ala Philippe uh-huh. is just riding away from Van Aert a little bit here. And Ala Philippe has cracked Wout nah. over the top he goes. It's the tight left hand turn that he takes now, and he takes it with a gap over White van There they are now, just a few hundred metres to go, as they'll turn eventually onto the Roma and line themselves out. There's Watt van there's Julian Alaphilippe, watch them come. Van Arts and Alaphilippe locked together. Their battle is going to be between them. Alaphilippe, Van Arts, side by side and crossing the line together. Van Aert with his arms in the air. Van Art takes it, we think. We'll have to have a look at the finish, but I think Van Aert got the better of Julian Alaphilippe, and that was a blistering finish from two of the finest racers. Come
0: prima più di prima t'amero.
2: Ned, what happened? I only watched the last 30Ks and it was
1: thrilling. It really, really was. But I, I sometimes I, I stop myself and I think, do I just say that? <laughs> Am I such a schlug? Am I such a schlug, David? Ah. Do I like bike racing so much that I can watch any bike ah. race and I'll come away from it and go, oh, I love that? I mean, is it just, you know me well enough now, you can be honest. Am I too much of a schlug? Or was that well, the first First of all, first of
2: all well, first of all, you have to um, we have to explain what a schlug is, <laughs> because although we are now very familiar with the term, I didn't know it until you introduced me to it, and uh, not- I think the, the, the legend introduced you to it. Bob Roll? Yeah.
1: Bob Roll, the American, the ex-racer uh, himself, um, who commentates for the American network, he introduced me to the phrase, and it's kind of like, only works really if you've got an American accent, it's one of those words, isn't it? But he refers. Yeah, he refers to. Um, he refers to. It's really dismissive. Actually, I'm not sure what to say. You know. No, 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 no.
2: It's not. So I'll I'll help yeah, you with on. it because I thought it's a really. I, I think it's a really. It's a lovely term, <laughs> because in the sense that uh, you have these hyper fans that come to races, and uh, when you do the job we do, and you at the end of the day and it's lovely to meet all these people but you will have people that ask a few too many questions and bob has referred to, referred to them as schlugs yeah cuz um, and there is a translation for it but he's like they're the people that they're lovely but they ask a few too many questions
1: yep. than need to be answered and occasionally um there's personal space issues isn't there there's the phenomenon of <laughs> yes, standing <there> <laughs> standing just slightly too close to you and as you say, just maybe overstaying your welcome by about 30 seconds. Not much more than that. It's not much. Yeah, it's not much. It's, not it's much. just enough. No, it's, it's enough to give you an entry yeah. ticket to Schlugdom. Yeah. Um, so, but, but you're right. But I, am I think
2: I'm Schlug. You, 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 you are a Schlug. <laughs>
1: <you, you>, <laughs> oh, he's finally called it. <laughs> <laughs> you're a Schlug.
2: But I'm a Schlug. When I watch Milan San Remo, I'm a Schlug. And I. I was, the last 30Ks, I only got a hunk, so it's, um, i went with the family and running around and kids all over me, and got it, and then it ended up with me and my sister, we just went into full schlugdom, me and my sister, because we were just WhatsApp messaging between each other about the race, not as her as CEO of Team Ineos and and my career just me and her as brother and sister loving bike racing going what's going to happen oh it's going to happen I'm telling her this she's like no this is and it was brilliant because Milan Senarima has that effect because so little is known it's such a random race that you end up um, uh, in the joy uh, the longest bike race in the world and I think this year was the absolute longest 305 kilometers yep. I think I saw longest and hottest uh, ever so was n- longest and hottest ever And yet, it's also claimed as being um, the simplest monument to finish, and yet one of the most difficult to win. Uh, And it's uh, which is classic cycling for me.
1: There seem to be, yeah, there seem to be a thousand ways to lose it, and only one hidden way to win it, isn't there? It's just remarkable. And it's, it's in some ways, it's much maligned as a race because. You know, you do hear people from time to time saying, ah, do you know what's so boring because you're just waiting for the last two climbs, which is to some extent true. But the last two climbs are only the last two climbs because of what went before, aren't they? You know, to some extent.
2: 100%. I've always said that about bike racing. It's this lovely, um, it's counterintuitive in the sense that, And, uh, I mean, you you introduced me to the idea that it's a lot like Test Cricket, and I think much of our audience is British, so they'll understand this, although I'm British and I don't really understand Test Cricket. You will watch it for hours and days, and there is this crescendo that just makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. And we have that in stage races, we have that in everything, but Milan-San Remo, we are guaranteed every single year to have that crescendo. So, it's the longest bike race in the world, and yet it all happens in the final 30 minutes. You know who
1: else is a a schlug? You're a schlug. I'm a schlug. Your sister's a schlug. Pete Kenyuk is a schlug. My my commentary today was occasionally interrupted by my phone pinging because Pete Kenyuk was watching it and he couldn't contain his schlugdom so he, he was texting me he was so excited by it and when gaviria popped i got this little message obviously misspelt you know like that there goes gaviria like that loving it and then i and the, after the race so, and a bunch of other messages and then after the race finished i said just as i was walking back to the hotel to start recording this podcast i said some bike race that pete and he goes I, I, you can actually hear him say it in his manx voice he goes how good love that race like that and, and I said, I said, I really wanted Begbie to win, right? And then I thought, yeah. or oh, Gilbert, because he was in the mix right at the end as well. And Pete said, the only, race, the only race where literally sprinters race climbers. And I thought about that and I thought, he's kind of right, isn't he? Like, it doesn't... It doesn't yeah, ever yeah. happen anywhere that's else. An, uh, and then I reminded him of... That's a brilliant... I reminded him of yeah, the of the, the order across the insight. line in 2018, which is just mm. every time you look at it, you go, oh yeah, that's, that could only happen at Milan-San Remo. Literally only. Mm. And that's... 2018 is first place, Nibali, second place, Ewan. And if you want to sum up Milan-San Remo, that's it. That's it, mm. isn't it?
2: I I agree. Um,
1: I agree. And I've got so much talk about the final
2: 20K. Go on, so go
1: on, because I'm talked out. Talk, down. We, talk we, about we, it. no.
2: Yeah, but I'm just thinking because there's a few things on this. It's because the reason for the Never Strays podcast, and especially this one, which is a special race edition, is you've been there, you get the build-up, you get the tension, and it's in August now, instead of being the first Monument of the Year. It's got a different course. You've then spent the whole day watching and witnessing. How different was it today, watching the race unfold?
1: Um, it, I'll tell you what it was absolutely swell tra- I've lost about six kilos in sweat they are obviously the Rye television truck which is you know kind of like first used in 1962 and hasn't ever been renovated but you know obviously the aircon <laughs> packed in and was just dripping, pissing water all over my feet and everything. And uh it was quite funny actually, because Johan Museu was just sat alongside me commentating for Belgian TV as well. And he was I just looked over and he was absolutely in bits towards the end. Sweat was just dripping over us. Um Well, it wasn't I'm wiping my forehead. Yeah, it, it was it was really good. It was really good. Um it, it was um, I, I just thought I'll tell you what, I mean, in terms of the racing, I'd like to know what you think about this. I thought that um MVP in terms of the teams rather than the individuals mm. would Trek Segafredo. Um, yeah, I don't know if you, were, the thir- if you only watched if you only thirty k, maybe you missed a couple of the attacks. But there you've, you've written so, yeah yeah, go yeah, you know, Mosca, You've written down so yeah, he was yeah. just one of many, wasn't
2: he? Yeah, so yeah, so and, and just to put it in perspective. because uh, although um, it wasn't the classic Lance and regards the running, it's uh, it's very easy to watch that race and hear what people talk about and look at the profile and go oh well it is what it is when you hit the depressor it's it's not a hard climb it's not a hard climb it's 5.6 k's it's average five percent or something and amazingly this is the first time i've ever done this archie was here with me my oldest son he's eight and uh, he was sitting on my lap as we were watching it and i was explaining what the climb was and trying to compare it to climbs he knows around here and 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 I said it's not hard. It's but it's it's really hard to race it after you've done 280 kilometers, and and when I saw Jakob Mosca go off, I was like ooh, and people could kind of flippantly throw that attack away. That's a really impressive move, because he took it all the way to the top as well, and when Loic Vlagen came up as well, I was like, well, from Trek Segafredo. It was a properly solid move mm. in was, the sense that was putting stress on teams. I thought Fliegen it was, Fliegen. was Fliegen. Absolutely,
1: absolutely terrific.
2: Yeah, and he, and he looked at, He made it look relatively simple. But I was so impressed by Jakub Mosca yeah. And you'll know more about him than I do. Ooh, what's his story? I don't know much. I, I'm, I'll look into I, it. I'm guessing, I, I'm guessing a I, bit
1: I, here, David. But I think, I don't think he's raced, uh, going out on a limb. I'll say it anyway and people can correct me. I don't care. Um, I think this, this is mm. his first World Tour gig. So I think he, I think he spent his career riding Pro Continental. Either I think it's Bardiani, mm. is he? I, I might be wrong about that, but um, he's. I'm quite familiar so with this him. Is, this he's normally, of, uh, what's different, yeah. David? Is I've seen Mosca race quite often at the Giro or Tirreno Adriatico, quite quite frequently. He always races that, and he's seen, he's one of those riders who gets in breakaways. A bit like today's, like the six mm. of the seven riders yeah. were Italian. Mosca would have been one of them quite often. Um, so mm. he was used in a completely different way today, and it it wasn't just um, it wasn't just Fliegen's Attack that he uh, policed was it because there was a there was an attack that came later on the, the Lutsenko on the flat mm. um, in uh, between yeah. the Chipressa. So he he'd reacted to Fliegen on the Chipressa, and then over the top of that, when they were all regrouped again on the on the nine kilometers in between the two climbs, Lutsenko attacked. Uh, he's a real hitter, and that's a dangerous move. And, and, and Lutsenko's yeah, he's uh, a, and Mosca no. Mosca went again. It was very impressive.
2: Yeah. So before that, and this is what, before the Trapressa, so, uh, and I always, because this is how I like doing this, because I, I've spent my life surrounded by friends and family that understand bike racing. Milan Sanremo is defined by these two final climbs, the Trapressa and the Poggio, which are in the final 30 Ks, the final 25 Ks. Um, they come off the coastline, they just literally veer right off the coastline, go up into Olive Groves, and they drop back down, go along, then go back up then come back down into San Remo and uh, so the whole race is dictated by everybody everybody that wants to win the race generally if you want to win the race you don't move before the Poggio which is the final Um, and it's uh, we hear a lot in Anglo-Saxon world about marginal gains Milan San Remo is dictated by marginal gains you never make an effort until the Poggio if you want to win you just you have a whole team if you're a winner you're a leader you don't see, and nobody sees you're invisible, then you pop out uh, about 15, probably about 12 Ks from the finish, then all of a sudden, oh, they're there. Now, something remarkable happened today, which just blew my mind, it was the, the winner from last year, as uh, we nicknamed him Begbie, Julian Alaphilippe, punctured about 25k's 30k's he punctured about 10 15k's before the trepasser he punctured in he punctured in
1: in Imperia which is the the, the coastal town yeah. they hit when they turned right yeah. so no 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 sooner did he yeah. hit the coastal road than he punctured
2: so that's an impossible that's in, in from everything i've seen and known and been told and experienced and read and watched you don't come back from that in San Remo because Even on TV, I was watching. So I only started watching 28Ks ago. And within a few Ks, he'd punctured and was off the back. And I was like, oh, shit, that sucks. And then he had Tim DeClerc come back and he got on and then got back on. But it, it, it was literally a lost cause. Because if you've ever been in that race, and I have been, everybody is racing at absolute maximum output at the front of the race and it's on these roads and it gets strung out over 800 meters a kilometer of the peloton and it was over and so then i was like well he's done and he'll try and he'll fight because he's he's julian and then eventually when it came watching Jacopo mosca Flagan, these things happen all the race i'd totally written him off and then we got to we got to the poggio and i was like oh shit he's there impossible and that's just so much credit to him so then uh the race went pretty interesting i think so that that was just uh before we get into what actually happened on the Poggio, i think it was that already is just so phenomenal
1: yeah i could com- completely um one of the stories of the Chipresa was um daniel os daniel os uh was after that move that you've detailed the trek move with um Circus Monty Goubert, who who actually deserve a hat tip because they lost their man for the day, Danny Van Poppel, who was one of the riders, including Matteo Trentin, who crashed. And they just adapted, they flicked a switch and went, Alright, so so now it's plan B. So you know, Fliegen attacks on the Cipressa and then later on the Poggio, Amy de Ghent attacked to some effect as well. And he was paired with another Trexava Fredo rider. Anyway, Daniel Oss shut it down for Border Hansgrohe, hit the top. Chuck that move down got on the front on the descent started ripping it up nearly crashed into a tv motorbike unclipped his right leg wobbled nearly went over the edge and then turned that life-threatening moment into an attack um uh, with about one and a half kilometers to go i don't know whether he really meant it but he was just so daniel os that it turned into an organic attack and he suddenly found himself right off the front and thought ah I might as well just and say so I might it, as well it, just get my bass guitar out and and do a few you know kind of like thwack a few chords out here and he hung on till almost till the Poggio, didn't he?
2: So incidentally during that moment that you just referred to, uh, because I was uh, in this constant dialogue with my sister uh, messaging, uh, and after that that moment and then watching the cappresidae ch- ch- descend and then I think the kind of the the legacy of what happened to um in in Poland to Fabio Jakobsen it's yep. just to Fabio Jakobsen she was like I it, this reminds me how scary bike racing is for me because she's obviously the boss of a big team and she's grown up with an older Brother used to race bikes and then she was watching San Remo and it's true San Remo is one of those races where it's just so crazy because it's, as we referred to at the beginning, it's so condensed those, those final twenty k's, twenty five k's. Everybody's so tired, <laughs> and every and actually, the race is won on the descents because you've got to punch over. But if you don't whole get over and then are completely mad at the descents, you you don't stand a chance. And it was at that moment you just referred to. Oss was unclipping his foot and going round she just sent me a message and said oh god i forget how scary bike racing is for me and just because each one of those people is somebody that she now it used to be her older brother now it's people that she she she's responsible for as ceo of tb neos and it's she so it was it was really nice kind of having that and i was like oh they're fine (laughs) don't worry (laughs) they love it
1: the uh, family, the families, su- but, the families um, suffer, David. Their families suffer. I remember your. Can't yeah. remember which. You'll be able to remember, yeah. probably. You stacked it big time yeah. on the tour one year, long time ago, mm. and I remember your mum mm. ringing me because um, yeah. um, I don't know where she was, but she she kind of got wind of it and she wanted information. And I uh, she I was the only person she vaguely knew on the race that might have some information. I can't, yeah. can't remember what crash it was, but
2: that doesn't surprise me. There's there's, there's never any info. Yeah. and it is and it was and it was. Uh, and, and then you have that with uh, messaging with my sister that i got Archie sitting on my lap. And I'm saying, and I'm like, watch this, Archie. Watch how fast they're going to go. And it was watch this descent. And so when we got to the Poggio and we were watching that unfold and I was telling him, well, this is where you have to get to the top of that, this climb. And you have to be on your own. And then you have to do the craziest descent of your life if you want to win this race. Hmm. And it was uh, it was just so... Cause, and that's the beauty of it, because it always happens the same way. And, I mean, you can talk us through the Poggio better than I can, because I was in a blur, messing with my sister, <laughs> talking to Archie, watching it as a fan. But the Poggio kind of unfolded in a very classic Milan-San Remo way, I think.
1: It it, it was, really. So the, the animators on the Poggio climb were Circus wanted Goubert, with Amy de Ghent, um, who I think we remember from a breakaway on the Tour de France last year, um, or the year before, can't remember. And um, young Belgian rider. He went, and he was good. And um, he went with Gianluca Brambilla, uh, who used to ride for Quick Step, rides for Trek Segafredo now. And he was like the only Trek Segafredo rider, apart from Nibali, who hadn't yet attacked. So you knew that this was like the penultimate move by Trek Segafredo before the big one, right? He just knew it, and actually, Brambilla was good, but didn't last very long. Um, and, he, and he kind of cracked, and then Amy again went past him. And as soon as um, as soon as Nibali saw that Brambilla had basically just blown up, he went. That's when the shark went. He just went boom. The camera slightly missed it, so he hmm. cut to it slightly after the attack. But straight on it was yeah. Julian Alaphilippe. Straight on Nibali's wheel. Art had reacted half a second later. Julian Alaphilippe, so straight away as those three went, he was on a he was on the, slightly on the back foot, and Alaphilippe had picked Nibali's wheel just that fraction of a second better. Um, so Nibali was off. N- Nibali didn't last long, sadly. He, he he faded pretty quickly, and Alaphilippe just soared past him, absolutely ripped past Amy De Gent as if he was the irrelevance that he wasn't, because he'd been animating the race. Um, and w- and then this then this fascinating duel all the way. So the Poggio is a strange climb, isn't it, David? Because there's this hairpins at the f- the, f- the top end, uh, sorry, at the bottom of it, mm. and it's the steepest at the bottom in the first two k. And then the closer you get to the top, the more it flattens out. Actually, so the longer they got into the Poggio climb, the less it favoured Alaphilippe. Mm. And and but he, yeah. but he just went. He went so deep, knowing that okay, if he can get if he can get. 4 seconds on Wat van Aert that it really isn't far to the Via Roma from there mm. but if he can only have two if he only has 2 seconds over the top it's right in the balance I and mean, I think he took about 2 seconds over the top but he was still yeah. so committed to the descent and van Art had gone mega deep uh, and yet they neither of those two were guaranteed to be clear of twenty twenty 20 riders still in the mix behind them including god knows who frankly because it's Milan San isn't it you know <laughs> you're going I have yeah, no exactly. idea I mean I kind of know that well, I think we knew already that you and the really fast guys weren't there right we'd seen Bennett crack we'd seen um right. Buani Pop. go out the back Pop. we'd seen Pop. Caleb Pop. Ewan actually went on the Cipresa yeah. which slightly surprised me so yeah. a bunch of those guys we knew weren't there but you know I mean look I'm showing you my commentary notes David which we can put on the website or something or whatever. We'll put yeah, link. but look yeah, we'll I mean, put on the website. So yeah. these aren't people who are gonna win the race, but there are people who you've got to be a bit worried about potentially. You know, riders like riders like Ivan Cortina, riders like Magnus Court, you know? Guys yeah. who've got no immediate track record mm. to speak of necessarily in Milan San Rema, but if they're in that group, they're a real problem, right? So mm. you've got this group of total randoms who you're not sure what's going on behind. And they can get back on. Alaphilippe did his yeah. best in the first kilometres of the Poggio descent to, um, to just get rid of Wout van Aert. But, like, maybe almost any other rider, Alaphilippe would have had a chance of getting away, I think. But not Wout van Aert. Yeah. Because he can do everything. He can do absolutely everything, Wout van Aert. So, he, he was matching Alaphilippe. And then, cl- and then eventually, Alaphilippe realised, okay, so now what do I do? Like, let him back on. I can't let him back onto his wheel. They got together. You know, it's was 50-50, wasn't it? It was White Van Aert closing the gap and Alaphilippe realising he had to come back. And then Alaphilippe played, I think, a ta- well, you tell me, because you saw this bit of the race. I think it was tactically... You talk about cycle racing as being beautiful, right? I thought the balance of understanding between those two riders was exceptional because they mm. knew they had to work together and White Van Aert accepted as the great leader and champion he's becoming, I think he accepted his status as favourite, and he understood that, Alef, that he would have to get on the front. He would have to sit on the front, do the lion's share of the work, and Julien Alaphilippe would sit on his wheel, and only occasionally go through. And I thought that was actually that that kind of instant understanding between the two was remarkable, actually. Well,
2: I, I think I've often brought up in our commentary is my love and still basic understanding of game theory is this idea within bike racing you have this um when you get to those absolute situations like that where you have to think on your feet and compromise and decide do we lose or do we win Mm. now that's that's not individual do we both lose or do we does one of us win and it's a wonderful concept that very sp- few sports have. And I think that's a, that was a very prime example today.
1: And it was wordless. You know, it was a, it was a word. I didn't that's see wordless. them, exche- they just knew. Yeah. They, they just knew. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's like almost... Huh, I remember in 2003, my first Tour de France, David, there was a, there was a stage into Marseille where a breakaway stayed away of two riders. A late break, actually. Um, one of them was Jacob peel and I forget who the other one was. And... Um, uh, the bunch, you lot, were miles behind. And so they knew, heading into the Avenue du Prado, they knew that, that, that theirs was the win, right? And just before they, just before they sprinted it out between the two of them, they shook hands. And yeah. I sensed that there was, between Van Aert and Alaphilippe, they mentally shook hands. And it was, uh, it's just like, the yeah. more I think about it, I just find it quite moving, really. Um, and yeah. it's like Van Aert acknowledges that it is Alaphilippe's right to sit on his wheel and just you know th- thereafter may the best man win
2: yeah and uh, just to explain as well because if you're in that situation every single day of the week Wout van Aert is going to beat Julian Alaphilippe in the sprint so uh so Wout van Aert is going to anticipate that Julian Alaphilippe he tactically is not going to ride with him he will only ride with him to make sure that he protects his it protects their their opportunity and their
1: mutual ambition yep
2: their mutual ambition he'll do the absolute minimum and he'll take it to the line to protect their mutual ambition uh but while van Aert you could see and even i was like oh and the thing is after 305 k's of racing you don't really know if you still got that <laughs> sprinter
1: ah very true
2: you don't know if you got and but watching if you and if if anybody is just listening to this without watching the race you watch Alaphilippe judge those last two or three k's. He kept looking back. He would only do enough work to protect their opportunity to win. He would not do it to help Wout van Aert win. And so, there's a, there's a huge difference between those two kind of decisions.
1: But it's a massively fine. It's a, it's a massively fine judgment, isn't it? It's a very narrow. Uh, it's a very narrow line that he's treading there. But it, yeah. and, and,
2: you know what? And 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 going back to there's a it's a it's an old school race and it's um this next teammate of mine, controversial teammate that uh, Frank Vandenbroek did this uh, to the most the nth degree in Paris Brussels. I think it was in 1998. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm just remembering off this, off my head where it was when he was just coming of age, or it might have been 1997 actually. And he was running in with three people into Paris, Brussels, into the final. And it was, he refused to ride for the last two Ks, refused to ride. And all he did was just sit on the back and kept looking behind, judging when he would ride. Hmm. And you were like, and that's classic, I think, game theory, kind of, okay, well, I can't beat you, so I'm going to call your bluff. Because the only chance I stand of beating you and protecting my potential podium is if I, if we do this game, mm, and mm. that's what happened today, and it was it was amazing to watch, and they both came out on top uh, with absolute respect because they both played their game perfectly, mm. and ended up being the best man won, mm. and Julian otherwise Julian Alaphilippe, I think uh, to be perfectly frank, and I'll stand by this without the puncture, he'd have left everyone behind in the podium.
1: So it's a, a miracle well, that he was even there to 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 be second. That's that's a perfectly reasonable call. I'll make another call, a counter mm. call, if you like. If he hadn't punctured yeah. six times at Stradivari, he'd have beaten Watanabe. Oh yeah, because because <laughs> the nature oh, of the yeah. finish, like uh, there's, ev- I'm yeah. so, I, I'm almost like mourning the Stradivari we never saw because, yeah. like ordinarily, if he hadn't punctured six times, we would have been treated quite possibly to the sight of those two the same riders on the Santa Caterina climb up to the finish line in Siena mm-hmm. and I think Alaphilippe would have beaten Van Aert on that finish or he would have had a better chance
2: Maybe. You know what, and actually that reminds me of something I was, um, this reminds me of something that I was messaging with my sister as well about uh, because we get into and, and it's you talking about him and his six punctures and the fact that he still finished the race, I think he finished 15th I think it wasn't terrible. It's was like he didn't give up. Yeah. You know, no, no. Julian Alaphilippe finished. Yep. He, he still finished, placed, when only 38 riders or something finished. And we are, we're in this very big habit at the moment of talking day by day, day by day, because yep. we have a very much, in the Anglo-Saxon world, we base the sport around stage racing. And so we're still trying to figure out with an Anglo-Saxon world why we haven't developed a one-day racer. Now, a one-day racer just does today and they don't do day by day they go all right today I, i'm all in and i'm going to do everything i have to do today and i won't give up and that was ala philippe in strada bianchi and that was him today puncturing it's, it, there's no tomorrow you go yeah yeah and it's such a wonderful concept and that's not you can't uh you can't marginal gain that. You can't teach somebody <laughs> that. That's an inbuilt character mm. that says, I will not give up today. Mm. This is I don't care about tomorrow. Mm. Mm. And Ala Philippe embodies that for me. And I think the way he raced today, and I think Walt Van Hart, the way he's racing, is embodying that. They are they race for today, they're not day by day.
1: So much to talk about, David, yeah. but I it suddenly occurred to me, you know that the phenomenon in six day track racing That used to be very common back in the heyday of six day races um, uh, on the continent, especially that the last race of the day would be called the race of the unknown distance, because um, the race organizers would put the would put the guys on the track, um, not knowing where the finish line was, and they would keep them rattling around the velodrome for as long as it took until the beer kegs were all sold and everyone had had their fill. Literally, that's like, that. They they just screw the public for as much beer money as they could, and then they'd ring the bell Business. for the last lap. I mean, that's genuinely how it used to work. I remember Hugh Porter telling me that he did a, you know, up on the boards at kind of midnight, <laughs> and he raced for an hour and a half until one o'clock in the morning, and then they rang the bell like that. So, 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 so it's a tra- it's a weird track thing, right? But do you know what? The Tour de France this year is the race of the unknown distance.
2: It is. It's the mystery distance. It's the. It's not day by day. It's today. It's Today. We race for today. We race for today. Tomorrow doesn't exist, and that's an amazing concept to think, because that's that's actually what bike racing is. It's about Should be. well, yeah. and 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 I and I always go back to this idea, and I and I try to do it with children. I think I you don't give up mm. there's no there aren't any second chances you if you crash you get up if you puncture you fix it if you if it breaks you'll get another bike just get back on go because that's what bike racing should be it's always about today mm. it's not about tomorrow mm. and it's um and i think and and I'll, i i'm not because this is this is not our um our main job ned by far where well, we not it's to not be let's be very, honest david um,
1: it's not really a job is it it just costs us money it's not a job
2: it's just it's a passion <laughs> it's just costs us money it's a passion project you know, the italian it's just an opportunity for us to talk about the italian
1: it. music that i used right in that little feature at the beginning of the podcast that cost me 99p i had to download that it's not a job <laughs> this podcast is yeah, we me. Had to we had to buy i have to buy batteries every day. <laughs> we had to buy again. the
2: software to do it <laughs>
1: No, it's totally the opposite so we can
2: say what we th- so we so we can say what we what we really want to say. And it's that idea where um you know, I'm kind of a bit sick of that idea where it's all kind of saccharine and kind of neutralized and the reason I'm a and this is what I was about to say, I'm a big fan of Julian Alaphilippe. I think he embodies what the ethos of why why I fell in love with professional cycling is you don't give up and you race today, not tomorrow and you just do it. And there, there's no algorithms to create that. Yeah. There's no, there's no, you know, and I, and I, and I, I hope, I th- I hope he serves as a great inspiration. I, I would love that he's a type of bike racer that if my children, God forbid, <laughs> did want to get into bike racing, <laughs> that that's the sort of character they take as an uh, an icon, as a as a hero, as a aspirational character, because he doesn't give up. Yeah, and he think and he just races for today, and so and so yeah, I'm happy to say that because that's why I fell in love with it. And for Wout van Art today, after everything he's been through, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think his win and let's not. Uh, I think the way he's. I think this has been a renaissance for him. I think it's given him a, a reset button that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't had that crash last year. He's managed to break himself free, free from the shackles of Matteo van der Poel because I think he was shackled to Matteo van der Poel and now he's totally broken free so he can be his own bike racer. Yeah, I mean... And he's... Oh, he's David,
1: we could... Yeah. Honestly, I could talk for hours about this bike race. Matteo van der Poel, you flagged it up last time we when we st- spoke after Strade He had a heavy cyclocross program. He won... 20, i think 21 major cyclocross races as well as the national championships the european championships and the world championships and white van Aert didn't race any of them because he was recuperating right so i think that is a factor and there was so let's just talk briefly about the group behind because one of the riders we did see in that group behind was Vanderpool, and with about a kilometer to go he was he got on the front where well, he was exposed really he, he found himself on the front and you thought Oh, oh, here we go! Tam's still gold all over again. He's just gonna, he's just gonna lead everyone out and then win the sprint. But he didn't actually. He looked round. He looked round, and so I think he's a bit, relatively. I think he's a bit cooked. And and um, Van Art has clearly just ripped past him in terms of form right now, as things stand. Um, you know, there's, the there's other also, the there's other there's thing that's theory, going on behind that made my heart leap a little bit, David, is was the go sight on. of at one point. The, at one point, the helicopter picked out Matej Moric on the, on the front. And on his wheel was Philip Gilbert. And I went and and mm. um, we'd been messaging. I messaged Phil Gill just a couple of days ago to wish him all the best. And Steve Cummings, who I was commentating with, who obviously knows him really well from BMC days, had been chatting to him as well. Both of us, I think, just went, oh, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Make this happen. That would have been almost the best
2: Explain to our listeners why? why that's so important.
1: Well, the reason is because he is in the modern era. He's the only rider who's been proven capable of winning. He, he has won um, uh, Liege-Bastogne-Liege. He has won Lombardia multiple occasions. He has won now Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. That's four of the five monuments. The only one missing was milan Remo, And they are such different races, all of them. It seems impossible. Um, but, but given that he didn't win and that Watt van Aert did... The discussion I'd like to have with you is: is Wat Van Aert, who has started winning races earlier than Philippe Gilbert, in terms of age. Gilbert is thirty-eight. Wat Van Aert is twenty-five. Um, is he the Monument man? Because he 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 can win Flanders. He can win Roubaix. C-c-c- probably win Liège best on Liège, but maybe not Lombardia. What do you think?
2: I think yes and I think also I think it's a brave new world in professional cycling I think we have to wipe the slate clean because the the bike riders coming through now they're a totally different pedigree to what the history of the sport is based on these these kids are amazing and and the sport's changed and things are different but I you know why can't Matteo Van der Poel win all of the classics why can't Van Aert yeah, why can't just... Pogacar turn himself to things why can't you know and it's you just think it, that's what's so exciting about the sport and I saw your tweet uh, yesterday or something you were saying about the, the excitement of, of what's happening with this uh, the op- the new opening the new normal of the cycling season all these new people coming through
1: uh, which is really exciting yeah, David, but it's, it's terrifying it's so exciting isn't it There's- it's terrifying. Alexander Vlasov, suddenly he's an acknowledged hitter, right? We were, Oh, yeah, obviously, Vlasov. Obviously, he's brilliant. You know, everyone knows that. But then you look back further. He couldn't have done that ride without the support of um, uh, Tajeda uh, from Colombia, signed from the Medellin team, who rides for Astana now. And apparently he's absolutely world class, right? Yesterday... Um, a stage was won at the Tour de l'En by Andrea Bagioli, who rides for Deconic Quickstep. Obviously, right? Apparently, he's brilliant. And oh, by the way, Deconic Quickstep have a a, a climber called uh, Joao jo Almeida from Portugal, who is obviously brilliant. All these guys, David, is terrifying. Which, like, okay, we moved we've moved away from Milan Sanremo Remo now. Did you watch any of the Tour de l'En today?
2: No, I saw briefly the results. I saw Roglic just destroyed everybody. Um, And I saw his team, Uh, Yumbo Visma. It was all about his team. Just literally, Mm -hmm -hmm. his team literally run amok. Because I I went back and looked at it because I was actually genuinely interested. Um, And I saw in that final K, who was his teammate that gave that final K lead out? um, Bennett.
1: Uh, well, actually, at Jeez, that point, George. George Bennett was utterly immense today. I've never seen it. I mean, he's been very good for years, hasn't he? But yeah. but, ah, oh, that was his best ride ever today. He just got mm. he got on the front twice on climbs, mm. ripped the race apart. Mm. But that was after Tom Dumoulin had done a huge turn. Kreisweig played his part, and Roglic was there as well. And it's such a rare sight, David. They Ineos had. T- t- Two thirds of their three quarters of their Tour de France team, there, including Chris Froom, who we now can mm-hmm. definitively say he's gone, I think. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, how was how, how was Chris? It Frem wasn't there, there? It wasn't there, David. He cracked, oh, he was okay. the first, okay. first he okay. honestly, cracked, and it wasn't like he'd done work for Bernal, he just lost the wheels, he was right, he out, was. so properly cracked today. Okay. Um, Thomas cracked quite early. So, and and uh, Castro Viejo was the last man standing in support of Bernal. So Bernal was really isolated. And I actually can't remember the last time I saw Ineos looking that collectively weak. Not mm. that they were, really. It's just they are faced with a fierce opponent now as a collective. I mean, they really can I are.
2: Can I just say something here, which is literally from my experience of, of teams, uh, bike racing teams and teams in general, I think, Uh Jumbo Visma, Jumbo Visma are in such an ascending spiral they're, and they've got nothing to lose. So uh, forget all the, the amazing support, how they're doing everything right. They're doing everything, I think, exceptionally. Recruiting the right people. They've got everything sorted out. They're doing all the signs of marginal gains. But at a, a general kind of, let's say, spiritual level within the team, I think they're just out there to beat everybody. Which is a which is a really kind of which is what Sky and Enios used to be. And I think they, they still have it, but these guys, they haven't won a Tour de France
1: yet. Yeah.
2: So they're out there to do it, which is huge when you have that within a team, when you've got that group of people that are out just to win, not to lose. They're out there to win. That gives you such a huge advantage.
1: They're like a. They raced today, like a super effective Movistar. <laughs> like they played all the Movistar cards, but they actually played them properly. You know what I mean? Like it actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. In the end, they won the race. You know, that's the that was the key difference. They didn't. Know, to, they
2: uh, they didn't daisy bomb themselves. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> so it's really good, and it's such it's a mouthwatering prospect now. I think really, really. Yeah. I mean, I think Benal is. Yeah. The longer this, these preliminary, well, you and me are doing the Dauphiné soon for ITV, and we'll know much more then. Throughout the course of the Dauphiné, but but um, yeah. Bernal is is with every passing, you know, race day, he's he's just laying a staking a claim to being the. Oh, I mean, let,
2: let's fit. Let, I mean, if we if I'm going to be boring, no one is going to beat Bernal uh, in the high mountains over a long run. The fact he could even match Roglic as well as he did in that sprint, when he's not physiologically designed to do that. Yeah, is hugely impressive, and also the attitude he has. So Burnout, uh, on his own, and again because we're not because I can be biased, Burnout could will walk over Roglic, uh, in a Grand Tour, but when he comes down to team behaviour, he needs his team. Mm. So mm. then uh, the the race between Burnout and Roglic, one on one, Burnout always wins, but the the two teams is what's going to decide it.
1: Uh, uh, yes, uh, apart from today where he didn't win, but I mean it was you know they were first and second and Ben. Yeah, was yeah, there. but, that's but what I mean they, they,
2: but that's what I mean. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I see yeah. what you mean. Yeah, because yeah. of the team, yeah. the discrepancy in the team mm. strength, and it's just um, yeah. you know it's a neutral. It's it's refreshing, isn't it, to see Ineos, Ineos yeah, you know, really, cha- really challenged. Um, mm. Anyway, mm. we've rabbited on. I should probably get this edited and uploaded, David, and out to Wrap the internet. Yeah,
2: let's do it. Yeah, it's spread the good.
1: word. And um, and and we we so today is the eighth. In four days' time. I think you're still. I think we can probably say it, can't we? You'll you'll still be in Spain.
2: I'm. I'm uh, going to be locked be in down in a hotel room in a uh, Gerona, and we're going to be commentating together. But we can do a podcast yep. like this. There's no reason why we can't do it with while talking about a bike race.
1: Yeah, we'll just have to remember Apart it's not the fact uh, we I just broke up. Then <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to remember that it's not a podcast. And. We can't just slip straight into Never Strays Far nonsense and start rabbiting on about books and stuff. But um, no, let's do some telly very soon, David. Um, I'll speak to you then, mate. All right? Ciao. Great. Bye. Ciao, bello.